Well, we've been working our way through the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, so you can turn there now if you haven't already. This Old Testament book is an experiment of sorts. Its author is determined to find out if life's great questions can be answered through any means other than the pursuit of God. Verses 2 through 11 describe a bit of a hypothesis of what our narrator, the preacher, expects that he will find through this experiment. And then it followed up with a a little bit more of a general rumination about the state of life under the sun. Uh, There are some important concepts that we've already established that we're going to be building on as we progress through this early part of the book. And so I want to bring them up to you again and remind you of them so that they're fresh in, in your mind. This concept that's going to show up again and again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is the concept of vanity. It is an evaluation that the writer of Ecclesiastes comes to as he tries to make sense of the world around him. Vanity is that which appears to be real, that which appears to have substance, but when you seek it out, when you go to grasp it, it just goes right through your fingers. It it proves itself to be nothing but a mist, a vapor that vanishes at dawn. So we're going to build on that concept of life being this vanity. And how do we find something real if it can't be found here in this life? Uh, The second concept that we're going to be repeating a lot that I want us to really kind of put our minds on and not forget is this idea of under the sun, which is a phrase that the writer of Ecclesiastes is going to use again and again to, to signify that he's talking about a life that is ignoring God. Now, there is no such thing as life truly apart from God. Even the most dedicated and passionate atheist in this world is rebelling against God because the Lord is allowing him to do that. Every living thing draws its breath because God is sustaining it. There is a general grace on this earth where God is is allowing people to live in this creation that he has made. So no one can truly exist apart from God. But many human beings walk through life as if God does not even exist. They go through their day, they make their choices, they pursue their desires, they do not consult God's word, they do not seek him in prayer, and so they are living life, as the preacher calls it, under the sun, capped into just what is going on in this world, but completely oblivious to the things of heaven beyond the sun. And so those are two concepts that we're going to build on. Now this week, the preacher is going to become more specific in his approach. He's going to begin to put this hypothesis that he's made in the first few verses to the test. And so we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Today we will be examining verses 12 through 18. King Solomon writes, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold... All is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This passage starts in verse 12 with a declaration of sorts. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Some historical facts are shared with us here. Now note the switch from the third person He's no longer talking about the preacher. He is talking about himself as the preacher. We're now in the first person tense. And that progression is going to continue on through the rest of the book until we get to the very last chapter. So we're going to have more of an autobiographical feel as the preacher speaks about his own experience and his own discoveries for the rest of the book. The details of verse 12 reinforce the fact that the preacher, who acts as the narrator and the prime character of this book, is indeed Solomon himself. Although there's a lot of discussion in academic circles about maybe it's not Solomon. But this verse, I believe, gives us ample evidence to trust confidently that it is. He declares that he was king of Israel. That's important. Not king just of Judah, but of Israel. Historically, after King Solomon's reign, the nation split into two different nations. 
There was a northern kingdom of the ten tribes in the north. Um, and then in the southern kingdom, Benjamin and Judah made up what we came to call Judah. So the, the divided kingdom uh, carries on after the reign of Solomon, after he passes away. He also shares that he reigned in Jerusalem, not in Sheshem or Samaria or one of the other cities that was used as a capital from time to time in the northern kingdom. He's ruling from Jerusalem. So who could this preacher be? Saul was the very first king of the Israelites, but Saul never reigned from Jerusalem, so he's out. David and Solomon are the only two kings who reigned over Israel and reigned over them in the city of David, in Jerusalem. Now David was a writer of Psalms, but he was not known as a writer of Proverbs or wisdom literature. So we can confidently conclude that the man writing this book of wisdom is Solomon himself, even though the name Solomon is not actually mentioned in this book. So this grand experiment to see if the ways of the secular world can bring fulfillment to man is being conducted by King Solomon. And the question that is before us is this. Can a person find fulfillment and purpose apart from God? In verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1, the preacher sees if the answer can be found in the pursuit of wisdom. There are many different ways that man can seek to find fulfillment apart from God. Many different theories on how that might be done. Pleasure, possessions, politics, power. But it should come as no surprise to us that someone like King Solomon, who was known worldwide for his brilliant, intelligent mind, begins his experiment by trying to see if wisdom is the answer. Remember that in 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 30, it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. The preacher begins this journey by seeking that which comes most naturally to him. He has a special helping of wisdom from God, so that's where his strength really lies. It is a testament, I think, to Solomon that though he possessed a mind that was unmatched in the known world, still we find him here pursuing more wisdom. He wants to gain more understanding. He, he understands that there is always more wisdom to be had. No matter how intelligent or experienced or well-cultured a man might be, there is always something more for man's mind to learn. So we have to ask, can man learn enough? Can he know so much about this world that he might find satisfaction and purpose and fulfillment apart from God? The discontent that man struggles with begs for an answer is that answer to be found in the acquisition and application of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 13 tells us that the preacher applied his heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now the word translated for heart here in the Hebrew word is not just referring to the physical organ of the heart. It's really the word that is used to describe the, the complete inner being of a man. What a man is in his soul, in his core. So if the preacher is applying his heart to seek out wisdom, according to the Hebrew, he is throwing himself at the task. He's dedicating his very core of being to finding this wisdom. He's not giving some half-hearted attempt. Now why is that important for his readers to know? It's important because on a smaller scale, you don't want someone who knows a little bit about engines to try and change the camshaft in your car's motor, do you? You don't want to sit in a chair and have some guy who took two semesters of junior college dentistry drilling on your teeth and putting in your fillings. No offense, junior college graduates. I myself am a provocateur of junior college wisdom. But you want somebody who has applied themselves to dentistry. You want somebody who really knows their stuff. There's a lot at stake in that dentist chair, isn't there? There's even more at stake when we talk about fulfillment and the great questions of life. If the preacher is going to make an impact on those who read this account, we need to rest assured that he did a complete job of exploring this task. We need to have confidence that he sought out the truth with his whole heart, especially in light of the conclusions, the heavy and waiting conclusions that he's going to draw at the end of this experiment. 
something that really grieves my soul as I look at the world around us is the quickness with which people will bend their will to someone who says what they want to hear them say. Not caring to examine whether what that person is saying is really right or true. So many people are just happy to hear the good news they were hoping to hear that they don't ask themselves, well, is this actually good news? Is there reality to this? Just tell me what I want to hear and I'll accept it. I'll be happy with it. Don't settle for a notion, friends. Pursue true knowledge. Pursue true understanding. We've got to be content only with true knowledge and not this semblance of knowledge or this idea of maybe this is true. Instead, we should pursue what is really true. And that even applies to the gospel. We pray every Sunday that God will bring to us people who will hear the gospel message, that in their heart the Holy Spirit will stir them up. They will begin to see the weight of their own personal sin, that they will begin to understand their own inability to undo that sin, that they will see that the Lord God in His great mercy has made a way where they could not make a way, that He sent His Son Jesus Christ to pay the, pr the price of, of sin, which is death, on a cross. That any, anyone who would trust in Him might have their penalty removed. That they might be set free. We pray that God would help people to understand the joy that can be had in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. But if someone comes up to me after a service and tells me that that's what they want to do, that they want to become a Christian, my first response is rejoice, but I'm going to be cautious and ask some questions. I'm going to make sure that, one, they understand the gospel plan, that they know what it means that Jesus Christ alone has the power to save us from our sins. I'm going to make sure they understand how serious sin is, that the, the sin that each of us commits day by day is a sin that has the power to condemn to eternal death. I'm going to try to make sure that they understand that this salvation is not from their works or their, their righteousness or their efforts to be holy and religious. I'm going to ask them if they understand the weight of the decision that they're going to make. You understand that you are here not to just say, I've changed my mind about something, but that you are taking your broken life and you are putting it in the hands of an eternal and mighty God. From this day forward, you belong to Him. You have surrendered your very heart to this God. He is your Savior and your King. Do you, do you understand what you're doing? I'm going to talk somebody through that because... I don't want people to just hear the great news that there is a heaven that can be theirs and that all the weight and guilt of their sin can be removed and have them think, well, that's easy. I'll go forward and pray that prayer. I'll change my mind. When in reality, it means that your whole heart belongs to Jesus Christ now. We've got to think through these decisions because there is no greater choice than you will ever make in your life than the choice to say yes and receive the gift that God is extending to you through grace. So the preacher devotes his whole heart to this task. His entire being is dedicated here to the pursuit of knowledge. He puts it to the test. <clears throat> Do we see evidence in our world today that others are hoping that apart from God, wisdom is the true answer to all of life's questions? Where do we see signs in our culture, in our society, that many are hoping to find the solutions to life's great problems at the end of the intellectual rainbow? We see it in many different ways. You look around you in the world today and you see a reverent respect for the sciences, don't you? People have this great view of what science can do for man and is almost the holy grail of knowledge these days. There's a common attitude that science tests the natural world to draw objective conclusions about what is real. And to some degree, that is true. But science is largely observational in its nature. It is a discipline of testing. The way that science works is you ask a question, you form a hypothesis or a theory on, on how that question might be answered, and then you develop a test that is repeatable that may prove or disprove the hypothesis. You repeat that test <clears throat> until you get trustworthy, repeatable data, results from the test, and then you go back and you refine your hypothesis if it needs to be adjusted. So by its very design, the vast majority of science is in a constant state of discovery, not necessarily a state of settled fact. Think about that. Science is not this great big record of all the right answers. 
But you'd think it was considering the kind of confidence that people have in information that comes from the scientific community. That is the state of the Western world. You can't have wisdom apart from science in the minds of so many Americans. And if those from a scientific background don't believe something, that it must be foolish, right? Not necessarily. Observe this great confidence that people have in science when most people don't even understand the pursuit of science itself. A second evidence that we have that wisdom is often believed to be the the ultimate answer to all of man's questions is this dogged pursuit of higher education in our land. The National Center for Education reports that roughly 41% of Americans will pursue a college education of some kind in their lifetime. 41%. That's a pretty good chunk of the people in this world, or at least in our nation. There are over $1.3 trillion tied up in student loans in America today. Can you believe that? $1.3 trillion. And that's not even counting the people that pay for it themselves. Now, to be fair, I, I cannot guarantee you that all $1.3 trillion of those dollars was spent on education. I know what happens in college, right? But that means there's a lot of people putting their attention and their time into trying to gain a greater understanding of the wisdom of this world. Some are pursuing that higher education because they just want to get a higher paying job. But many are still seeing this college experience as the time in their life when all their questions will be settled and they will set the course for their own personal future. Now, not to say that that's necessarily wrong, but we need to be aware that the majority of the institutions of higher learning in our land are stocked to the gills with thinkers who refuse to even consider the idea that there is anything that exists outside of under the sun. There isn't even a discussion going on on most college campuses, at least at the academic level, maybe in between the students, but the the teachers are not even addressing the idea that perhaps true wisdom is not to be obtained through our senses, but perhaps there is a greater source, a, a greater well from which we might draw of wisdom that is not just relegated to the material world that we observe with our senses, but is in fact beyond, it is transcendent of mankind. The fact that Our nation puts so much time into this pursuit of education shows that people think wisdom is perhaps the key. And a third way that we see, a third evidence that shines out in our culture is the proliferation of the access to information that we have. There is so much data available to man today. It's almost like we cannot get enough of it. And just 30 years ago, if you were hoping to research a topic that you didn't know very much about, You might hop on your bike and and ride down to your grandparents' place and pull one of the Encyclopedia Britannicas off the shelf, because Grandma and Grandpa probably had encyclopedias, right? And you might thumb through that, and you might read the one article on that thing you were trying to discover. If you were really full-heartedly going after that knowledge, you might uh, ditch the bike, get a bus ticket, and go down to the library and pull out a couple of books at the library and read a couple of opinions on that topic that you didn't know anything about. Man, have times changed, haven't they? Today sitting in most of your pockets is a little high-powered computer that will connect you to satellites in space and will give you access to untold numbers of data and information that you can just draw up and be constantly looking through and going over. Not to say that all that information is necessarily reliable or true. There's a lot of opinion there as well. But consider the amount of information that you are being bombarded with on a daily basis. Access to the web is now being championed by some as a basic human right. Whether people use it or not, they should have access to this great resource of data. Basic human right? We didn't even have an internet 30 years ago. And yet now people are saying that if you are a human being, you deserve to have access to the web. Everyone should get that for free. How our viewpoint of wisdom and information has changed. There is so much that we must sift through. And are we wiser for it, friends? More data is available to you than ever before. And I would, I would argue that our society on a whole, now I'm not talking about you guys, of course, but <laughs> our society as a whole, I would argue is dumber than it has been in a long time. Because we don't have to truly pursue knowledge anymore. We have become a reference society. We don't need to learn things 
Because now you can just look it up in a minute on your phone. You don't have to go to school for that. Just look up a YouTube video on how to do it. Just find somebody who's done it before and just use their experience rather than gaining our own. We, we learn very little nowadays by actually coming underneath somebody who knows and learning from their experience and learning from their direction and example and their face-to-face -face instruction. So are we really getting wiser from all this information? It's debatable. But there is definitely more information available to your processing mind than probably in the history of humanity. The preacher was not the last person to wonder if wisdom held the answer. Now there is um, a movement, although I hesitate to even describe it to you as a movement, because very few people I know would ever say, I am a secular humanist. There are some, but this movement is largely in academic or philosophical circles, has had a profound impact on our culture to such a degree that most people hold to the tenets and the ideologies of secular humanism, even though they would never think to call themselves a secular humanist. This is a belief that morality doesn't have to come from God. It is a stubborn insistence that religion is not necessary. It can be established, morality can be established by rational people working together for common good. It strives toward a system of ethics derived by logic and science and observation and is marked by a particular optimism that all of life's questions can and eventually will be answered by the capable mind of man. Secular humanism sounds very positive. It sounds very empowering. It is characterized by a distrust of universals. Those who are secular humanists don't like the idea that there are standards that have held the test of time, that there are universal truths. They would much rather be free to change what they believe, to, to shift what they think, to meet the, the demands of the world in front of them. They, they need to zig or zag. They don't want to be tied to some tradition that, that creates inertia in their intellectual life. They are marked by a pragmatic uh, way of living rather than an idyllic way of living. In other words, it's not so much if something is true that matters, it's whether it is useful. Does it work? So those things that people who are secular humanists that they hold to, if they find something new that works better, they abandon the old idea and they shift to the new idea quickly. And finally, it is rooted primarily in the individual, not in the group. Those who are secular humanists are distrustful of large entities such as religion or faith or some sort of book that claims to be the word of a God who is above all and has authority over all. They would rather the human heart be the authority for one's own life. So morality is what I make it to be. It's what I want it to be. That way nobody has dominion over me and I can form my own morality to match the desires of my heart and the needs of my particular experience. The influence of secular humanism has led to this common unwritten belief that many people hold to. It's the idea that the mind is the best thing that we've got going. So we have to trust it implicitly. If a thing is to be believed, it must be reasonable, it must be logical, it must make sense because there's nothing that you can trust better than your own mind. This is described by uh, philosopher Immanuel Kant, who is not a believer. He says, all our knowledge begins with senses. It proceeds then to the understanding and it ends with reason. There is nothing higher than reason. That, in a nutshell, is life under the sun, detached from this God who is greater and transcendent than we are. What if the mind, and I'm not anti-intellectual, I hope you don't think that from this sermon, we need to be rational thinking human beings, but if the mind is not the greatest thing, if there is something greater than our intellect, but we have given our mind our prime devotion and our absolute trust, then we may be cutting ourselves off. If the mind is the gold standard for truth, then we might be committing ourselves to a platform that is lacking, perhaps even a platform that is incapable of answering these great questions that so often haunt our hearts and minds. What is this thing that we're going to show you here on the screen? What is this? It's a dinosaur, right? 
It is a VHS tape. And it wasn't long ago that an empire called Blockbuster was being built. <laughs> Blockbuster video built on the back of this little device, which so efficiently contains sound and audio data that you could plop into a large electronic device in your own home and watch movies. And so many of you probably, you think back to the time when these things were hot, you might have had whole closets full of these things. You might have had a library of your own. I know people that had hundreds, thousands of dollars even invested in VHS tapes because they love stories, they love movies, and they, they wanted to be able to watch those movies whenever they wanted to. Or perhaps they took videos of their own with a little camcorder, not little, right? Shoulder-mounted camcorder, and they wanted to be able to watch those back. And then something happened. Something new came along, something about this big that was shiny on one side and a picture on the other called a DVD. And the greatest thing to come to entertainment for so many years was suddenly rendered obsolete. If you had invested so much in that platform of VHS, you were disappointed when everyone was running out to Target to buy now these new compact discs, these new DVDs. And in a way, that is, that is kind of what we're describing here. When man decides that the human mind is the pinnacle of reason and that we must trust our own mind over everything else, they are determined to live in a VHS world even though there is Blu-ray available to them. Even though the wisdom and might of God has been given through the scriptures to us, so many people would turn rather a blind eye to that and figure it out on their own. So man often believes that the answers to the questions that grieve him are locked in the mind and simply need to be released. The preacher applies his heart to see if that is true. He puts wisdom to the test. He walks down that road to see what lies at the end of it. And what he finds is not a comfort to him. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. No matter how hard man may try, life's difficulties can never be distilled down into simple, orderly systems. There are always gaps. There are always unexplained wrinkles in the theoretical musings of humankind. And I think one of the greatest blessings of Ecclesiastes is beginning to become clear to us as we look at our own minds and we see how deficient they are. The blessing of Ecclesiastes is that it urges us to stop trusting that which has no business being trusted. And then it drives us back to the only one that we can truly trust. And that is God himself. There are several reasons why man's intellect, apart from God, cannot ultimately answer life's most important questions. To begin with, wisdom, apart from God, can never be complete wisdom. Can never be complete. Remember, remember that Solomon, who was the wisest man on the earth, right, still felt compelled to pursue more wisdom. He didn't feel as though he had arrived, even though he could confidently say that there was no one else in the world as intelligent as him. The mind of man can only grasp so much. If by the human intellect we draw conclusions and answer the great questions of life, why am I here? What is my purpose? How can I be content? How can I make this world a better place? If we answer those questions according to the limits of our mind, then those answers are all contingent on what I know today. But tomorrow, I might know something new. And I might have to change what I think about life's answers. So our contentment would always be in peril if it rested on what man can know. Turn in your Bibles with me for a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now this, this book of 1 Corinthians is a wonderful book to explore the limitations and the blessings of man's reasoning mind. And so we're going to go back to it from time to time. I love when you see echoes of one book of God's revelation um, shining out in another book. And so we're going, to, we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul teaches us through his letter to the Corinthian churches as it pertains to our wisdom, as it pertains to our understanding. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting with verse 6, the Apostle Paul, writing to his brothers and sisters in Corinth, says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age 
who are doomed to pass away. Let's stop there for a moment. We do impart wisdom. This is Paul speaking on behalf of the Spirit-filled apostles who are leading the church and instructing uh, those congregations. He says that we do impart a wisdom, but then he differentiates that wisdom. He identifies that there is a wisdom of this age. What is he talking about there? He's talking about human wisdom apart from God. He's talking about wisdom under the sun. And he describes it in terms of it being limited. Why? Because man passes away. It is immature compared to what God gives to his people. So this man-made wisdom exists. We must contend with it. But the Apostle Paul says, through the Spirit, those who are Christ's will be imparted with a better wisdom. Verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this or understood this. For if they had, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So the Apostle Paul, after he has differentiated between this wisdom that comes from above and this humanly wisdom, this deficient wisdom, goes on to assure us that there is a secret and eternal wisdom that man's mind cannot seek out independent of God. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard. You see, Paul is showing us how our wisdom is acquired, typically. Human wisdom is, a, is acquired through the senses. And there are limits to our senses. We don't always see what we think we see. We don't always hear what we thought we heard. There are definite limits to our ability to acquire knowledge in a humanly way. But godly wisdom is not acquired in that manner. It is imparted to us. Those two things are different. To, be, to acquire something is to work to gain it. But those who trust Christ have been given a wisdom. It has been a blessing to them by the Spirit of God, that we now have eyes that are open that can see things that we were absolutely blind to before. That wisdom is, by its very nature, based in reality. It's not based in perception. It's based in reality because it comes from a God who sees all of what is real and evaluates it perfectly. These deep things are only revealed by the Spirit of God. So the pursuit of wisdom apart from God is not the answer. For the questions of life are bigger than man's capacity to answer those questions. We don't have the tools apart from God to figure out what is wrong with man's, man's depressed heart. Here's when we begin to see the futility of life under the sun. The answers to life's questions cannot be found in this realm alone. We need to get beyond this mortal and corrupted world to find these answers, we need to pursue true wisdom. Don't forget in Isaiah 55.8 that God, speaking through His prophet, shared this very important piece of information about Himself to us. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Think about that for a moment. The answers that we are seeking can be found but they can only be acquired by a God whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not naturally our thoughts. We must seek Him. We must have His permission to know what we need to know before we can find this contentment in life that so many people are striving for. There is a fundamental difference in the way that God thinks because God is omniscient. There is nothing that God doesn't know. He has never acquired any information because He has always already had it in Himself. All things are plain to God. He has no opinions. He has no ideas per se because it is reality for Him. Everything is completely understood at all times throughout all history by this living and amazing God. How different is the mind of God than the mind of man? If we cut ourselves off from that infinite wisdom, all of our own attempts at wisdom are destined to fall disappointingly short. There are more reasons, however, why we should be disappointed in our own intellect and learn to not trust it as the, the prime example of truth in our lives. Wisdom apart from God not only lacks completeness, it also lacks power. It lacks the power to act on what it knows. 
Solomon includes in our passage today two Proverbs that explain why wisdom falls short. One is verse 15 and the other is verse 18. There's a pattern to it. And in verse 15 of Ecclesiastes 1, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And of course, he's talking about his exploration of by man's power, by man's wisdom. There are things that are broken with this world that you might be able to perceive and understand to a degree, but you will not have the power to straighten them out. You will not have the power to count what resources you lack to solve the problem. To know is not the same as to act. There is much man's mind has come to know, but cannot make into a reality. Wisdom cannot straighten out this fallen world, at least not man's wisdom. How many times have we sat at the bedside of a loved one as a doctor lists off all of the facts of what they have found out that was wrong with that individual? Their hand in our hand, we've listened as they've shared all this information that they've gained from years of experience. They know what to look for. They know the tests to run. They know how to examine the charts and figure it all out. And so you hear all these things that they know, all these things that they've come to discover about your loved one. But the last sentence is the one you did not want to hear. There's nothing more that we can do. We've done all that we can. You ever been in that depressing situation where man knows what is wrong but doesn't know how to fix it and there's nothing you can do to change that. How frustrating it is when we determine to trust in our own minds and believe that this is where all of our answers are going to come from when again and again and again life is not ashamed to teach you the limits of your mind. You might be able to understand many things in this life, but there are so many things that you can see with your mind's eye that you cannot make a reality, that you cannot change, that you cannot solve on your own. We just don't have the resources to do it. We don't have the time to accomplish the great task. We don't have the systematic understanding to work our way out of that problem that we can understand but can't solve. This pursuit of knowledge is described in Ecclesiastes 1.13 as an unhappy business. Of course it is. The more we think through this, the more we see how little we know. And the further, the further we examine our own intellect, the more frustrated we become at its limits and lack. The honest pursuit of knowledge can make a skeptic and a pessimist out of the most resilient optimist. And that is where this idea of ignorance is bliss came from. Have you ever heard that phrase? Ignorance is bliss. As I learn more, I'm just frustrated more. As I come to discover the ins and outs of reality, I find that it just makes me see how much I am lacking. And so I will choose instead to just be ignorant of the big problems. I'm going to let other people deal with those problems. I'm just going to live life the way I want to live it. I'm going to put my head in the sand and let the world pass me by. And I'm just going to make sure that my time is spent doing things that I like to do. Ignorance is bliss. Friends, ignorance is not bliss. That is a great false advertising. And in fact, when we choose to live this ignorant way, we are often just pushing our problems farther back and ensuring that when we finally get to them and cannot hide from them anymore, they will be monsters and great, greatly bigger than they were when we first encountered them. The pursuit of wisdom is an unhappy business, and yet this unhappy business is a blessing to us in disguise, friends. If we're to go on thinking that the answers to these critical life questions will be ours if we just try a little harder, if we just research a little more, if we just put a little more faith in ourselves and in our human intellect, then our hopes are founded on nothing substantial. Truly, they are resting upon vapor. But losing faith in our own minds just might be what we need to experience before we begin to look past the vapor to what is truly substantial. When we start to turn our eyes to what is above the sun, what is beyond this earth in our senses, then we begin to see that there is hope, that there is strength and truth. It's just not found in humans. It's found in God. Consider the testimony of Job a man who lost all the material good that existed in his life. His family was stripped away from him. He lost all of his abundant wealth. 
His peers no longer respected him, constantly berating him and asking what he did to deserve such a terrible fate. His personal health failed. He's covered in boils. He's a miserable human being, or he should be. But he stays firm in his faith in God. Not one of us, given the opportunity, would sign up for Job's calling. Not one of us would trade places with him. And yet after such a disheartening shift in life's circumstances, after his life was essentially laid to waste, Hear what Job himself has to say about his view of God. Job 42, verses 1 through 2. And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. How different is that than man? God can do all things. Though we might be able to figure some, some things out There are many things we cannot do, but God can do all things. And none of His will, none of His plan, none of His purpose can be thwarted. There is nothing that we can do to derail the will of God. He will make it come to pass. We we talked about earlier how God is omniscient and we are not. Here we see that God is omnipotent and we are not. He is able to do whatever He desires to do. There is no good thing that He cannot accomplish. He has all the resources He needs. He is completely, perfectly capable of doing what He desires. He speaks and it is. There is never a deficiency of resource or any sort of a lack in the Lord our God. One final reason why man's intellect apart from God cannot ultimately answer life's most important questions is this. Wisdom apart from God is severely limited in its scope. Let's look again at Ecclesiastes 1.14. We've read it already, but let's, let's look at it one more time. The preacher says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. But as we read that verse, I mean, Solomon has to be speaking figuratively. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. But could he have possibly seen everything that is done under the sun? Can any human being hope to see everything that happens in this earth? Not one of us can say that we've done that. This is what we call hyperbole. It is a, it is a figure of speech that emphasizes a point. Even Solomon in all his great wisdom could only learn what he could learn. There was far more than he could gather going on in the world around him. Think about the fact that we sit on a rock spinning around a sun, a small sun in a galaxy that is full of galaxies. There are, there are universes that are unnumbered. There is so much going on around us. And we have almost no knowledge of it. And yet God has a complete understanding of it all. And He is the one that keeps the clock moving. God's scope of knowledge is not limited. He is in all places, at all times. There is nothing that exists apart from Him. Listen to the words of Psalm 33. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds. This, friends, is not hyperbole. This is literal. The Lord God knows every thought of your mind. He knows every emotion of your heart. He sees every circumstance before it ever plays out. He is completely all-knowing. He is able to do whatever He desires to do, and there is nothing hidden from His eyes. God is omnipresent. Man is not. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is teaching us here that we are not God. And that is why we are so frustrated. Because we have determined in many ways, through our disobedience to the Lord, to be what we are not. To fight against the reign of a perfect, good, and holy God and to pretend as if we could do this without His help. We are, are we to apply our own hearts to seek wisdom? When we think about how frustrating this, this exercise is for Solomon, should we just bury our heads in the sand and, and hope that ignorance will bring us some bliss? Or should we also be pursuing wisdom as he did? Of course, it is an unhappy business. Look at verse 18. For in much wisdom is much, much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases in sorrow. So yes, the more you learn about this world, the more news you bring in, the more you see the truth of man's depravity, it can be a heavy weight on the heart. 
It can vex our minds. It can be depressing to us. But this is an unhappy business that God has appointed man to be engaged with. Look again at verse 13 there. The Lord God has appointed us to this business. We cannot just turn our ways, our eyes away from the truth and live ignorant to it. We must pursue it. God desires for us to see the truth that we cannot fulfill ourselves. Otherwise, we will not seek Him. We will not go to the one true source of fulfillment and truth. We will not seek the Lord God. So as difficult as it is, as humbling and as sobering as it can be, we don't have the luxury of remaining in the dark or burying our heads in the sand. But our pursuit of wisdom must be tempered properly. This pursuit, while necessary, is not going to be enough for us. And we need to know that before we even begin. The task is not easy. It reveals, it lays bare what needs to be laid bare. In many ways, it lays bare embarrassing things about ourselves. It lays bare our weaknesses. It lays bare our limits. But we cannot afford to live in ignorance. We must pursue truth. And the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes throughout this book is going to remind us of that. In Ecclesiastes 2.13, he says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. He's not an anti-intellectual. He's just realistic about wisdom. He says in chapter 7, verse 12, For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So yes, we should preserve we should pursue knowledge. It can be like a shelter to us. It can in many ways keep us from harm. Ecclesiastes 7.19 Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. 9.18 Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Ecclesiastes 10.10 If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. So this dark picture of man's wisdom and intellect is not to discourage you from trying to be as wise as you can be. We need wisdom. We must pursue wisdom. We are called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But don't make wisdom into something that it is not. Don't let academia or intellectual pursuits or the facts that you have gathered, don't let that be the cornerstone when Christ is the one true cornerstone of the Christian's life. There's a movie coming out, and I want to preface this by saying I have not seen the movie yet. It's called Unplanned. Um, it is an interesting story, and it, it seems from reviews that it should be a pretty powerful movie. It's about a woman named Abby Johnson. Abby Johnson grew up in a Christian home, went to church with her parents, somewhat conservative family. But when she went off to college, um, she began to listen to her professors and her peers, and they thought much differently than she grew up thinking. And because these were the people that she was paying money to teach her how to view life and to walk through the world, she began to shift her thoughts to their camp. She began to believe the way that they believed. And after a while, she needed to you know, pay for school, so she got a job at a local Planned Parenthood. Now, Planned Parenthood is an organization that is largely subsidized by our government that has uh, done some good. They offer some free services to people for, uh, for testing, for medications, and things like this. But one of the things that we have to be very careful about is that Planned Parenthood is one of the prime providers of abortions in our nation. And so they are quick to advise women who have become pregnant and are not sure if they're going to be able to be in a good position to raise that child they often encourage them to end that child's life before birth to make it easier on mom. And so Abby took a job there at this Planned Parenthood. And uh, she worked at first as a receptionist, but she applied herself to the task and eventually worked her way up and became a manager of this branch of Planned Parenthood. And she served in that way for many years. Until one day, as the story unfolds, there was a shortage at the Planned Parenthood facility where she worked. And there were abortions being performed in that very clinic. And they were down a tech. And so they needed her help. She washed up, suited up, and came into the operating room. And there, with her own eyes, witnessed what she had been ignorant to for all the years of her service to that Planned Parenthood. And the brutality and the ugliness of seeing this tiny, precious life put to an end shocked her into awakeness. 
and this young lady who thought that she was doing good for others by being at this Planned Parenthood realized that this is nothing that she could be a part of. She turned and she, she fled that place. And in fact, she began shortly thereafter a ministry to help young ladies to see that there are other ways of, 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 of addressing these problems of unplanned pregnancy, that there are individuals who will gladly step into the gap and will help them, that God's church will be a resource for, for these young ladies that provide help and, and, and presence and love. And if that's not a, a viable option, that, that there are those who would adopt those children and bring them into their homes with a happy heart and be fulfilled to love those little lives and to give them a chance and to protect their lives. And so, friends, we see here that this life that we are living, we can't afford to live in ignorance. There is no bliss in simply closing our eyes to the truth. We cannot live as if there is no God in heaven, that there is no God who sees the depth of our heart, that there is no God who hates sin and will punish sin as it is appropriate to punish sin with death and damnation. We must be aware of these things and open our eyes to the truth not so that we can set ourselves free from it, but so that God himself can set us free from this trap that we have made ourselves. He is loving and good. He is able to overcome any sin. And he will do it through the blood of Jesus Christ if we will turn our hearts and minds to him. Would you bow with me as we conclude in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for your grace and we ask today that the things that we learned would not... Um, cause us to go away from this place depressed, Lord God, but that we would have this true view of ourselves and that, that we would not try to deceive ourselves into thinking that our minds are more capable than they really are. I pray, Father, that we will be humble before you, that we will understand that not only are you all-knowing, but you are also good and merciful and loving and that you care about those whom you have created, Lord God. And so I pray, Father, that you would turn hearts towards you. Help us to put our great faith and hope in you. May the things of this world not be our first love, Lord God. Let us love you and let all other things come after. I pray, Father, that we would reject these notions that all the answers can be found within us. Lord God, when we really truly look inside of ourselves with a humble heart, we see our sin. We see our rebelliousness, Lord God. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. We are grateful, Lord, that there is no sin that you cannot overcome. And so I ask, Father, that you would show us true forgiveness through Jesus Christ who suffered on our behalf so that we might be made right before you, Lord, that we might be invited into your family, that you might be our loving Father in heaven. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.